Hi, Chris. How are you? Evening, Rod. Yes, all is well, but I'm not sure Crocs are the best shoe device to wear when getting to your shed through the snow. No, I don't think they're high up there on the list of Arctic survival equipment. No, convenient when it's dry, but not great when it's snowy or wet. Anyway, <laughs> that's my mission well, to the shed today. Well, I was going to debate with you, actually. Which is superior in that case? Is it slippers, which would cover your feet, and you can get the outside grippy ones with rubber on, or which would keep the rest of your feet warm, or is it Crocs, which would dry off quicker in the snow? You wear Crocs from A to B, and then when you get to B, you put your slippers on for the, the pro move. So I have a pair of shoes I wear between the two buildings, and then inside each building, I have a pair of shoes I wear for warmth and comfort. Crocs and socks, or just Crocs? It's Crocs and socks. Because <laughs> nobody can see me walk down my garden, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable with it. The, the Crocs do not leave the garden. They, they're just for A to B, no further. I see. Okay, yeah, you wouldn't want somebody to see you in Crocs. They're going to judge you. Judge you harshly. Exactly. But I think around the house, they're ideal if you just quickly slipping on, do the bins, run down to the shed to get something, get some firewood in, but not for going out the front door. <laughs> they are banned from going out the front door. That's perfectly reasonable. It's like going shopping in your in your pajamas or your dressing gown, which you occasionally see people do, but shouldn't be allowed. You probably see it more than me because you live in a university city and I live out in the sticks. But yes, you occasionally see somebody in the local spa shop in their PJs, which I find quite amusing, I think. Yeah, it's a hell of a thing. You've put me in mind of this, the new word that's been added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Have you seen this, the, the, the phrase that was added this year? You clearly mix in very different circles to me. Well... I hadn't heard of it. It's the first year I had to go and look it up. Like I know when selfie became a thing and they do this every year, they take the new words and they add them to the dictionary. This year's word is goblin mode. Goblin mode? Goblin mode. Is that one or two words? It's two words, but it's in now in the Oxford English Dictionary. Oxford okay. word of the year. Word of the year? Yeah. So is it a new word of, and it's been added to the dictionary? Yes. Is the word of the year always a new word, or is it sometimes an old word that's that ha- come back that has a new meaning? I think, I think it's normally a new word that sort of defines the change in our language over time. Now, I'd never heard of goblin mode, and, and I actually read my first thing about it this morning, and, and then I thought, just as you were talking there about walking around in your Crocs and not being seen, what goblin mode is, is when you're in the house by yourself and you do disgusting things like, I don't know, clip your toenails or something into a magazine or I don't do this I'm just hastening to say I'm just saying I'm giving an example of and then forgetting to put it in the bin or something like that that would Surely be goblin clip mode. your toenails in the middle of the kitchen and <laughs> don't pick up the escards yeah that would be worse or if you're a groomer while you're walking around the town as you said before but it's those kinds of things you wear your crocs that nobody else sees you and you know you just continuously scroll scroll twitter or whatever it is that's goblin mode that wasn't quite what I thought it was actually I thought it was maybe I kind of thought maybe it's you going to the shops in your PJs and you didn't want anybody to see, but you're going to do it anyway. Well, it's close enough. I think it, you know, it makes me think of Gollum and Andy Serkis and, you know, Gollum, (laughs) you know, with his two personalities. So Goblin Mode, there you go. Link in the show notes to a Guardian article on Goblin Mode if you're interested. Okay, well, I've certainly looked at something new. Should we get on with introducing the show, though? We're episode 47 and it's the 11th of December. And hopefully we've got the show and the date correct. For once, hopefully we did. Yeah, good. Nice to talk to you again, Chris. And I guess we will straighten out a little bit of follow-up. I have a little note that said, Chris had to play Open Red Alert this week. Did you do that? Chris did not do that. Apologies. I've had a bit of a mixed week, if I'm honest. I've had some poorly children in the house, some birthdays in the house, and I did not get much me time. So apologies for not doing that one. I did look at it, did think about it. I even thought about setting up a VM machine to run Windows on my on my Mac, and that's 
I don't know why I had these thoughts, but I didn't get anywhere with either of them. So apologies, that's still on the list for next week. Maybe you, I'll make some progress. But you didn't need to install a virtual machine to play Open Red Alert. It was just that it would have worked on your Mac. I, I kind of want to install a virtual machine so I could play Red Alert Remastered on the same device because I've got a separate laptop to play it on. And I thought, actually, I wonder if I could put it all on the same Mac and then I don't need separate devices and get rid of one more laptop in the house, which would be a win in my view. Yeah, you're all about simplifying your devices. You have triggered in my head a little thing I wanted to talk about. that The people who are making a Linux that runs on the current Apple Silicon, which is Asahi Linux, have managed to get the GPU working under Linux with OpenGL drivers. So if they can get Vulkan drivers running as well, that means anything, we talked about this before, anything that runs in ProtonDB, which is Steam stuff, may actually run in a virtual machine or in a, in a Linux box on your Mac. That would be impressive. That would be impressive. And I kind of wanted just to see what's Windows like on my M1 Silicon Mac and could I play any of the games that I'd like to play on it? Because I do have a few on EA Origin and I have a spare Windows laptop that I bought secondhand just to play things on because I don't really do it very often. But I do like less devices because I'm more likely to maintain them, I think, if I've got less. Anyway, so I didn't play it and I tried to make my life more complicated and I didn't either. So maybe I'll try next week. So apologies on my front. I do want to play it. I did have a look at some of the screen grabs. One thing I did think about OpenRA compared to the remastered version is the graphics just are nowhere near as good. But I do obviously want to play June 2000 and give it a proper go. So I will have a look at it, I promise. I think that's fair comment about the graphics not looking as good as the remastered one. But this is a bunch of people knocking it together in their spare time rather than being paid however many, you know, the, was it Rebellion? Who was it that got paid to, re, paid to redo Phantom Conqueror? I forget. I can't quite remember who got paid to redo it, but they brought back some of the original people that made the original one. And so there was all of that and they were trying to remaster the movies. And this was at a time when they filmed the full motion videos on a videotape. So, you know, very old school, not even digital. So very interesting, some of the story of how they remastered it. And I don't think they could in the end remaster some of the videos. They just had to do the best they could with the, you know, with the technology we've got today. So I will play OpenRA. Sorry, I will get there. But I did download it. I just didn't get any further than that. There's a whole sequence of things that you could lose a lot of your time in in using machine learning and AI type stuff to remaster videos. This is particularly interesting in the nerdy Star Trek geeky community where Paramount spent a lot of money remastering the next generation for 4K because they were going to stream it on Netflix, but haven't done that for the other series that were around the same sort of time. So Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager were around the same sort of time and shot in a very similar way. So they haven't remastered those for 4k whereas next generation looks fine on netflix it's great they've done a good job of upscaling it so the community has kind of taken to trying to upscale this themselves and there's some amazing fascinating articles on the choices you can make to try and upscale video that wasn't even 1080p it was a, it was sd really for its day you know not 720p nothing and just the effect you can have and the choices you have on the algorithm you pick to upscale your your media it's quite a job, isn't it? Because they did this with the wire. That was originally not widescreen. You know, it was just TV, four by three. And I think they had a first tablet and they got some issues with it. And then they sat down and really did it properly. So it is quite a skill. I always find it interesting, say Pulp Fiction, for example, has not been done in 4K yet. And it, it strikes me as odd. And various Quentin Tarantino films haven't. But Reservoir Dogs has, which is his original film. And it, and it does stand up well. I think if you can get the, the originals and they can do it in the right way, and they also do it with Heat, uh, the Michael Mann film. That's been done in 4K and looks looks really good. It does. It's not obviously up to today's standard if it was filmed today, but for a film filmed back in 94 slash 95, looks stunning. So there is some really good stuff out there to do. Fair enough. Okay, I think that'll do us for your failure to play Red Alert and we'll, we'll check back in next week to see how you've got on with that. 
Time machine backups. Tick. I did do this. I bought a hard drive. I installed said hard drive. It's quite noisy. And I backed up my wife's laptop and my father-in-law's laptop to it over the network. All worked really well. I don't know how I back up my own Mac to it without reformatting the whole drive. So I, I need to just play with that. Of how do you back up over the network your Mac to itself? So but I'm kind of happy I'm doing my wife's because with the shared photo album now, that would solve most of my problems. Surely that should be the easiest thing to do, to back up your Mac to itself. Don't you just turn on Time Machine? Yeah, but then if you point it at the, sh- at the USB hard drive, it wants to wipe it and take ownership of the whole hard drive. So you need to back it up over the network share, and I frankly run out of time. So I will report back on that. But anyway, the networky piece with my wife's laptop onto the Mac, piece of cake, just followed a very simple article because behind a hidden button was the option to go make this a time machine network share and, and off you go. So quite cool. The hard drive seems quite quick and it's great to have six terabytes of storage on the Mac because it's quite under under spec. I think I've got about half a terabyte on it. So that that's helpful because I can just use it as a bit of a scratch, scratch, scratch drive, especially when downloading things like Xcode. But I'm keen to work out how I back up my Mac to it. So it's a job for tomorrow. Fair enough. Monday morning job. No, that's interesting. That's not what I thought about. I, because of the way I do it, it's a network to share. I just back up all the Macs to the Synology. It's not a thing. So yeah, that is, a, that is something to consider. Yeah, which is how I did it previously. So anyway, I'll report back on a local, how does a map back itself up to a network show on itself? Right. Okay, fair enough. Good. Any other? I think that's everything. Fair enough. We've got quite a lot in there, actually. Okay, moving on to the news. First story, just a very little one from Google. You can tell it's coming up to Christmas. The stories are beginning to dry up a little bit on us, I think. So the first story is Google bringing continuous scrolling to the desktop. I presume this is something they've maybe had on Android for a while, where you put in a search term into Google on the, on Android, and you can just scroll and scroll and scroll. At the moment, if you've used the web to search for a thing on a computer or an iPad or any device other than that, you just have to page through it so you get the first however many search results it is. It seems to me an increasing number of advertised search and then the three or four you're actually looking for. And then there's the next page and the next page and the next page. And I don't even know if Google still does it or I've subliminally ignored it. It used to go Google, depending on how many pages there were, you know, along the top for, for how many responses, the tens of thousands of responses you'd get. Still does it. I was just trying out on my iPad. I don't really use Google. Amazing how it doesn't really look any different than what it looked like about 10 years ago when I last used it. But no, it still says Google. And it's mine still showing me page numbers, not infinite scrolling. I'm a duck that go kind of guy. And I'll be honest, I don't usually browse past the first page for most things. So I wonder how many people actually go that far. Well, it's just, it's an interest. It hasn't, it hasn't been rolled out around the world yet. And the US are getting this first. You know, you, you get six pages of results when this hits us, which will be just in a single scroll with a see more button to see more results. And I, I just think it's an interesting reflection. You know, we continually talk about social media on this show. And that sort of doom scrolling that Twitter and and others and Facebook have brought to us, where you can just continually scroll and never get to the bottom of the page. Google is obviously being influenced by that. That's the way consumers look for things. I suspect it will probably come to DuckDuckGo and others, because let's face it, they all tend to follow a trend. I just it's it's an interesting design change. It's not a page they mess with very often, as you've just said. Yeah, that's true. And if you go to DuckDuckGo and use it, it looks pretty much like Google anyway, to be fair. So you are right there. So I wouldn't be surprised. Interestingly, I'd imagine it's quite easy for DuckDuckGo because they don't do the pages like Google. They just have a more results button. So surely when you hit the bottom of the page, it's just like pushing the more results button and pings down the next set of 10 or whatever the number may be. Yeah, it seems odd to me that people are still searching on desktops and going past page one, but there you go. Watching people search for things is an odd thing. So I use Raycast. It's my automated response as I do command spacebar on my Mac. It brings up a thing. I type G-O 
and then tab, and I just search for, search Google in there, or I do duck, and it search duck, 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 go in there, or the Brave search engine, or whatever it is I'm feeling lucky to do. So it's sort of default to me, whereas I watch people, rather than even just visit the URL bar up at the top, which most browsers support these days, and just start typing the thing it is that you want to do, they type Google into the top page and then search within that. And no matter how often I say to people, you know you can just search within the title bar, they just continually, you know, keep doing what they're used to. It's really weird how these habits get ingrained and you can't sort of optimize some people's behavior on this stuff. I love watch, watching people use a device. I love watching people use an iPad especially because obviously I, I think I'm fairly advanced with it and it's great to see how people interact with it, how they think they have to, you know, d- do certain things. And I find on the iPhone as well, when you show people that you can just swipe on the on the home bar, whatever you call that bar that you swipe up to go home, you can just swipe left on it and you can, you know, go back to the other app you're in. It's interesting watching how you blow somebody's mind, I think. Yeah, it is quite nice to do it. I often wonder if you went back in like six weeks or something like that and asked them, do you remember that thing I showed you? They'd forgotten and just defaulted to the way they used to do it. Isn't it really hard though to change behaviours, which is back to the home bar, is why I think Apple got that so right because we all just adopted it really easily after having a home button. And that, I think that's a good change, whereas it's really hard to change how you use something if you've always used it the same way. And it's often when, say, Apple bring a new feature to an OS, you don't always pick it up and stick with it because you've never used it that way for the previous 10 years. So it, it, it's quite a skill, I think, to introduce a new feature and make you use it. Yeah, you're making me think of an experience I've been still continuing persisting using my iPad with center stage, stage manager, stage manager. One day I'll get it right. And all I was trying to do was I had the notes app open and I had a web browser open. I had Safari open and I was trying to go between them to the two of them. It just, why has it got such a problem with one window behind another, you know, partially obscuring another one? I, I don't understand their problem with, you know, I kept having to shrink one window or grab the one behind that I wanted to get. I found it absolutely infuriating. Uh, they need to change that and go, let me do whatever I want with my windows or let, let Apple sort my windows out for me. And I think they need that as an on-off flag because I would agree with you, it can be really infuriating when it's trying to be too clever and it can't do it. Yeah, so this is in that sort of vein, isn't it? Even when I want to change my behavior, the system's enforcing something back on me. I'd say one thing Macs were really good at was allowing that flexibility. If I look at the Mac I'm on now, I've got about seven different ways of arranging windows if I want to. I can use Expose, I can use Center Stage, I can tile them all very carefully, I can install a plugin and you know get them to take over half the screen or a quarter. I can be very careful about the way I do it, whereas you're just so restricted on the iPad. It's either side-by-side or this sort of half-baked stage manager thing, which I know is working well for you. And as you pointed out, you are a pro Mac iPad user, so maybe it's just my shortcomings as an iPad user, but... Center stage, no, stage manager isn't perfect. I got it wrong that time. It is not perfect. It is better than what came before, but it is definitely not perfect. And I think I've just learned to live with the quirks. Fair enough. They do need a way of tiling stuff though. Why is there not a button where how I can just tile windows? That seems bonkers to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And tiling window managers have been around for a long time as well. In fact, I think Windows 3, Windows 3, not even 3.1 did tiling of some sort. So anyway... Anyway, moving on. Next article is the Tor browser is now available for Apple Silicon. This has obviously been a long time coming. We've had Apple Silicon for at least two years at this stage. The Tor browser, which stands for the Onion Ring, Tor is a privacy-first networking thing that is kind of a VPN and kind of not a VPN. The idea being you enable the Tor protocol and it will set exit and entry points for where you're browsing somewhere else. So lots of people run 
Tor exit points on their computers or just as part of the, the, the Tor network. When you turn this on, either you can enable it in a browser as an extension, or you can just run the program on Apple Macs up to now or on Linux machines, and it will route all your network traffic out of that endpoint. And it changes every time. So unlike a VPN where you've just got, you connect your computer to the VPN, the VPN typically exits somewhere like Sweden or London or Glasgow or San Francisco or something, wherever you've set the endpoint to be. Tor will randomize potentially every time you connect to it or every time you access a new search result. So finally bringing this to Apple Silicon is a big deal. One less reason to install Rosetta on your Apple Silicon Mac and her privacy protects for more people. We're gonna talk a little bit more about security in the main show. So I think having tools like this particularly for people in countries like Iran, where there, are, where there is protests against the government going on or, or there's any sort of need to ensure your privacy because you're a journalist or an endangered person. I think it's a good thing and making it easier and faster to use on the computers people use is a good move. Do you ever use the Tor browser? I have used it from time to time. No, I, I don't exclusively use it. When I need to use a VPN, I use a VPN. We've talked about that at length on this show. You know, Either either to work or, or home is my, my more typical use cases for it. But it's definitely a, a handy thing to have in your sort of tool chain of devices that you know you've got that if you need to, if you do need to switch it on because your vpn is not working or there's something else or another alternative to route your traffic through i think it's a handy thing to have i've never used it i always think of it in the dark web if i'm brutally honest because that's what in my head i just associate it with which is probably 100 wrong it's taken a long time to get native on apple silicon i'd have thought it'd been a lot quicker than that i thought Microsoft were taking the time with teams and you're right i wonder how long rosetta is going to be around for if i'm honest rosetta too because we're two years in now. It's, it can't be going forever, can it? It's gonna, you know, another two years maybe, and then I would imagine it will cease in macOS. It's a very clever bit of software though that what works really, really well, and lots of people re you know rely on it for legacy code. It does save you spinning up a VM. It does save you doing something like that because it, it it's I. It's a hard sell, isn't it? How quickly Apple move along a lot of the time. You know, they're moved from 32-bit to 64-bit and how quickly they ditch to 32-bit stuff. They're moved from Apple Silicon to Intel and the previous one from that, from PowerPC to Intel. They're not the best at holding on to legacy stuff, are they? And this has only won them plaudits. It's almost invisible once it's installed. You know, unless you actually go into Activity Monitor and specifically look for Intel bits of code that are running in Rosetta, it works really, really well. And I can't think of many other software companies that have done it as many times as Apple, Apple have, and so successfully. And this is just another absolute big tick for them for something that they managed to do so well for people who haven't updated the software yet. And software like this is a perfect example of it. Somebody somewhere in the world relies on this, so you know they're not at risk from their government or they're not at risk from you know, bad actors of some sort because they're a journalist and they're reporting on something inside of their country. Uh, so to take it away by not, you know, if, if Rosetta hadn't been there until this was made available, I think it would have been a big deal. I, on one level, I can understand why these things take longer. If you think of the percentage of people who use Tor on a Mac, it's probably small. Presumably, it requires some sort of internal security stuff that had to be written. They need The developers needed access to the silicon to do it. And it's, it's run by volunteers. Microsoft pay people to do this stuff, and you eventually get there. So I can understand why some things take longer. Yeah, and obviously they're doing Windows, Mac, and Linux all in one go. So, so you can understand why it does take time because it's, it's just got to fold into the roadmap with the other platforms. So, so I do get it. I do agree with you. I think Rosetta has been fantastic. But equally, you know, Apple will want to keep moving it forward and not carry Cruft in the OS. So it's, it's days are numbered even before it got started, I guess, is, is what I was thinking. But no, Tor's interesting. And I agree, the more things that get native silicon, surely the better. Totally. Yep, important stuff. 
Moving on, more in our everlasting Microsoft and Activision, a case certainly the gift that keeps giving in the absence of Elon doing anything interesting with Twitter. And this is the Federal Trade Commission in America suing Microsoft to block its Activision Blizzard purchase for a grand total of 68 point Hold on, let me get this right. The purchase is for 68.7 billion, but the FTC are suing them to stop this happening. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Is it going to happen anyway? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this go through and then Microsoft just have to pay the bill? Possibly. I mean, this quote is interesting. The FTC argues that the acquisition would enable Microsoft to suppress competitors to its Xbox gaming consoles and its rapidly growing subscription content and cloud-based gaming business. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, that's exactly more or less the same reason that the Competitions Emergence Authority have given here. The EU are watching them as well. And I've, I, it's been interesting watching Microsoft sort of shuffle around this and try and get people on side. So the second story we've linked to is Microsoft, Microsoft offering Nintendo a 10-year deal to bring Call of Duty to the Switch, or at least Nintendo consoles. I didn't think the Switch ran Call of Duty. I'm surprised about this one because... That feels like a lot of engineering to make a game like that run on the Switch. And the Switch is not the best platform for this game, clearly. So I wonder whether it'll be cloud-based. They did do that with Assassin's Creed. It was You could play it, but you were more playing a cloud version of it and just having a, you know, a dumb client, in essence, on your Switch. I've not played that game. I, I, was, I was kind of put off because of that. I'd rather have a game native on my device. I don't know why I can't, can't explain it. So yeah, interesting. That one surprised me, though, because surely it is a lot more work. And it's got to be a very small market that's really playing card on a switch well i wonder so they also release call of duty for mobile platforms you know and you can get cod mobile so maybe they'll just bring the mobile variant of it rather than the full-on you know modern warfare modern warfare 2 mark 2 as it is now for ps5 xbox pc steam all those all those platforms that would be an easy way of doing it let's face it the silicon in the switch isn't all that the gpu in the switch certainly isn't all that so if they sort of lightly polished the mobile version and the mobile version's getting the original warzone map as well you know they could say yeah we're still bringing it to other platforms such as the switch and i suspect they'd make a little bit of money if they allow crossplay. i know that apex legends when it came to the switch is rubbish <laughs> you know yeah it's just not got the horsepower as it is the switch has got some truly fantastic games i completely agree but it not everything is meant for the Switch. I've actually got a Grand Theft Auto on the Switch. Brilliant. Grand Theft Auto Vice City on the Switch, the definitive version. Loved it. It's an old game, obviously, from the PS2. And you can get the remastered on the PS5. And I nearly bought it the other day because, oh, I'll get it on the PS5. And I was like, actually, no, I really enjoy playing on my Switch. It works really well on that sort of console. I don't I don't, don't want it on, on the PS5 necessarily. I wonder, a couple of things on here. My, Sony obviously worried that Xbox, Microsoft, I've got the upper hand with the cloud service, and they clearly have. We've, we've talked about that. Sony's just hasn't really made a big difference. I thought Sony's would. Sony have got, Microsoft obviously worried that Sony have got lot, lots more locking with developers to bring exclusives. I think that's fair. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but you need to, you need to in any, in any battle to make it interesting. Like with Android and iOS, you need a Sony to an Xbox. The Switch just isn't really there, is it? It's, it's, I think it's a fantastic console. My kids are playing on it a lot with Splatoon at the moment. That's really got them back into the Switch. So what am I trying to say? I, I think the deal's going to go through and then Microsoft will just have to deal with the FTC afterwards. It certainly feels like in the last week it has shifted with these 10-year deals for Sony and Nintendo. And it might, might go on longer because Microsoft might, might make a huge amount of revenue out of that. wouldn't be surprised. But it, it, I do wonder whether the Xbox game pass is a race to the bottom kind of like we had on the app store race to the 
the free games and in a in-app advertising is this a race to get everything on the bundle and then surely the bundle is going to have to start going up in price at some point because it's you're not going to get your money back unless you saturate the entire market i don't know it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out five years from now yeah i guess we'll see i mean the thing is it wasn't a straightforward deal for Microsoft anyway, was it? There was all the internal accusations of sexism and bullying and all the kind of things that were going on with the developers at the start. So Microsoft was certainly the saviour in some senses of Activision Blizzard. I think they fired, was it Bobby Kotick was the name of the chief executive who was in charge with of Blizzard Activision at that time. He went when the, when the merger was announced. You know, Microsoft have got quite a good reputation for at least looking after, well, not that we've heard otherwise, of looking after their staff and, you know, and and being reasonably considerate employers from that point of view. So that's quite good. They've run game studios for a long time. The Xbox is well regarded, I think, internally for, for the way that they treat people, as far as we know, again. So from that point of view, it's good and it's shiny. But, you know, the longer term, as you say, the 10 years of this. Giving somebody a reduced version of what the new hotness is isn't the same as get you know, the AAA release that happens for the platform. It's interesting what you were saying about the Switch. I think its limitations are not necessarily a bad thing. It makes it very good at a particular kind of game, and if developers know that, they can code for it. And there's enough games for the Switch. Call of the Wild, you know, Mario Kart, Animal Crossing, Pokemon, for those that are into Pokemon. They suit that console very well. I think it's, you know, the new Mario and Rabbids game has been very well received from what I've seen as well in Edge magazine, where I, re- I do still keep up with the reviews of what's going on on the platform, even though I don't even remember the last time I switched mine on, sitting over my shoulder next to the TV in the corner. But yeah, I mean, it's a complex market, but it's set to this, to me, strikes of Microsoft throwing Nintendo a bone and Sony a bone going 10 years. If you've got a long-term plan for a platform, it goes beyond 10 years. We'll be into the next version of the Xbox by then. If we're saying five to six years of a console's lifespan, you know, the next one comes out, they release the next version, they're probably already planning the making of that. So it's the one after that that matters, really. So I don't think 10 years is that big a deal. No, I agree. I think 10 years is a small bone that they've given Sony and Nintendo to placate them. It's probably done the done the, done the the do, as it were. But who knows? Call of Duty may fall out of favour in 10 years. You just, you just don't know, do you? You know, games move on you know attitudes change like command and conquer who'd have thought that they'd only make four real command and conquers and it would fall off a cliff kind of thing because it was such a big franchise when we were a lot younger same with total annihilation they never really did one but it was a massive game and it never really went anywhere further than that same with bullfrog games you know it's not gonna go on forever is it you say that but you've picked all from a genre there that you like you know (laughs) yeah but they're all all genres i like that just disappeared and you would have thought they wouldn't necessarily disappear so card will change at some point remember we all used to play on our nintendo wii's and do all the wii motion stuff and stand up and play golf that's all just disappeared yeah i'd say that was a fashion though if you go back to the beginning of video gaming and you picked some of the characters you know mario is still there sonic the hedgehog is still there when it, when a big enough franchise comes along grand theft auto you know those franchises now roll along don't they you know year after year and who knew grand theft auto was going to be such a big thing when it was the top down you know london simulator that it used to be laughing when you say grand theft auto because it was on the grand theft auto 5 was on the ps3 4 and 5 and they've not really done much with it in, in the, i know they've done lots of online stuff but you know in the single player big game they just haven't done one have they for the whole of the fourth generation of cons ps4 and they haven't done one on the five and the five has been out for two years now no but those tentpole games i think there's a lot of them you know from early to mid 90s and certainly beyond that in some cases where they're still like i mean people still play pac-man <laughs> you know and they still True. release a pac-man character here we've been playing tetris for 30 years now so it's 
there are those sticky things that say, and I'd say Call of Duty in the age of it is one of those things that has that sort of cachet. And yeah, things come and go and there is fashion. We're not playing June 3000 at this point, are we? You know, except when you've got things like Open RA, but it's not a big tentpole anymore. But I'd say the genre continues. Petroglyph, that's the name of the studio. It's come back to me. I didn't even need to Google, Google it. They did the Command & Conquer remaster. They're about to release another First World War real-time strategy game that looks phenomenal. So I think the concepts stay and the, some developers that are good at that kind of thing reinforce it. But... The big tent poles, the Marios and the Sonics and the Grand Theft Autos and, and the Call of Duties, have such brand loyalty to them that people will just buy them without looking. Yeah, no, you're right. But also things come and go from fashion, I guess, was my point. And it can be massive at the time and you can't see past it. And then sometimes it just disappears. And that that's that kind of thing. And and, and you, you forget how quickly it comes and, like I say, it goes again. So it's going to be interesting to see where we are. Maybe if we're doing the podcast 10 years from now in... 2032 and it's coming around to christmas are we still talking about cod i think the arthritis in my thumbs might stop me playing it by then <laughs> fair, fair point <laughs> anyway that's enough about that that should all have probably gone in gaming we've got so little to, to talk about in gaming this week but you can take that as a bonus gaming section moving on meta are in the firing line in the eu i don't know if you saw this story do you want me to give a summary i've not seen this story Okay, so using personal information for ads without consent has put Meta in the European Union's gun sites, according to this article from the Register. European privacy regulators have determined that Meta's use of personalised advertising in Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp violates data protection laws, and they mean the GDPR specifically in this. So this is a case that's gone forward in Ireland, where Meta have assumed, because you use the app, it's okay to advertise and to make use for Meta to make use of that advertising information they're collecting. So this is absolutely a breach of GDPR, and this is the trouble they got into with Apple when Apple said, no, you'll have to inform users what you're collecting on them in our, on our platform. And they lost a huge amount of money as part of that deal. As soon as Apple said, put up the privacy warning saying, did you know this app will do X, Y, and Z in terms of your personal data? And lots of people said no to the app in the App Store. This is that, but within the EU. So they may have to change the Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram apps in the EU as a consequence of this. I mean, within the article it says, this is a huge blow to Meta's profits in the EU. People now need to be asked if they want their data to be used for ads or not. This must have a yes or no answer, and they can change their mind at any time. You can see Meta being, well, losing their losing the plot about this, can you? Yeah, but are Meta making more money what the fine's going to be? I wonder if that's the game they play. They roll the dice and go, yeah, we're just going to crack on and do it anyway. Sure. But I think we're, we keep talking about perfect storms and, and we know it made an impact on their, their work with Apple. Being being highlighted in the App Store in that way caused the drop in revenue. You know, there was massive pushback from Meta to Apple about doing this and still is. You know, Meta's involved with a lot of these sort of antitrust things with Apple trying to point out that they're just as bad as Meta are, which is quite ironic. But I just think this is quite a big deal. It's, it's an EU-wide thing for advertisers within Meta and how that impacts upon them. And there's potential fines within a month. And if they implement the fines in the same way that they have for, you know, Apple particularly, what was it, 50 million a month, something like that? Was it 50 million a month or 10 million a month? I can't remember now. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's 50 oh, million a month. An amount per month, every month, for as many months as it takes to resolve it. That eventually begins to hit your company's bottom line, particularly as we've been talking about here in the podcast. 
they're not doing all that well at the moment in general, are they? You know, they're beginning to lose money. The Oculus hasn't done well. Their portal device is about to vanish without a trace, which won't surprise anybody. So it's just, it's it's interesting. It's, it's a lot of things beginning to stack up against Meta's sort of business model. And they've let lots of staff go. They're obviously having some issues. Maybe they've bet on some of the wrong horses. Okay, yeah. So don't, don't disagree. It's going to be bad for them. I do wonder whether they did play the maths game on a spreadsheet of going, shall we just forge on anyway? Because nothing ever sounds good that comes out of Meta, does it? It doesn't. So just to sort of cap this off, in the last year, Meta has been fined $900 million just in privacy cases. And even for Meta, that's not chump change, is it? No, that's that's massive. That is, I know you, whoa, yeah, that's a, that is a big number. It, it's, it, you know... Of that, four hundred and two million in September this year for failing to protect children's data in Instagram. This is not a good look. Agreed on that one. It's disgusting. Good. Okay. So that's Meta's wars, and moving on to, and I don't, we don't think this is going to be Apple's wars, but and I still don't have my buzzer. We now have a date for when the EU will require USB-C to be the standard for wire charging, and that's December twenty eighth, twenty twenty four. So we have to have a USB-C iPhone by then. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? It's two years today. It's plenty of warning. So I reckon next year's Pro, following year, oh, job done. I think we'll have USB-C iPhones this this in the next upgrade. I think they will for the Pro, and I reckon they might drag it out for the regular. But I don't know. I, I could be wrong. Happy to be wrong on that. But I wonder whether that will become a differentiator as well next year. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about here is Apple's gradual shift in manufacturing away from China. There's been a few news stories in the last couple of weeks that they're trying to expand their manufacturing bases in India and in Vietnam. Are this sort of two countries they're trying to move a little bit out of China, so all their eggs aren't in one basket. I mean, you could say all of Tim Cook's career up to this point has been the logistics and the flow around how to make iPhones and Macs cheaply in China at quality level and get them out of the country. Despite the sacrifices they're making for privacy, more on that later, within that country in order to get it made. So... It is interesting they're beginning to diversify the manufacturing of these things. To, and, and I think they opened a plant in America actually this year as well, or at least MC, Taiwan Semiconductor, opened a plant that Apple's going to benefit from because they take lots of chips from there. So to me, this is just another, you know, if they're going to make one device or more or less one set of silicon, you know, with the A15, A16, whatever it's going to be in it next time, I think it would make sense to change all the phones to USB-C but put in a different restriction. Maybe the standard iPhone models have a limited... You know, transfer of data within the USB-C chip, as we see in the iPad currently. You know, whereas the pros get full, full, full fat, use as much data as you want into and out of the phone. That could be an op- a way of doing it too. I guess it depends whether they want to f- drive more people to go to pro, or whether they actually want more differentiation. And given that everybody seems to have gone pro this time around, maybe they will force them all to go USB-C because they don't want the differentiation. They want more of a split because they're struggling to meet demand. I think it's going to be a big bang. I mean, they're going to get the complaints about, we only just changed away from the dock connector to this lightning thing, and now you want us to change, even though it was 11 years ago, 12 years ago at this point. I think I think, I think it was just over 10, wasn't it? Was it? Anyway, it's a, it's a while ago now. It's, I think it's lasted longer than the dock connector did. I think we had 10 on both. Anyway, I, I predict they'll go big bang. I think iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Pro will be USB-C. Let's wait and see. I, How, I think is that another bet for us? Is that another thing? I don't think I've got enough conviction to bet because I could argue it either way in my head. I just wonder whether they will use it as a differentiator for the first year. I don't know. I, I just can't see them wanting to put the different connectors in the box at the point they decide they want to move. Yeah. 
Yeah, they did for the iPad though for a long time, multiple years. True. Four year, four years. True. Four years. That's just not good enough. Anyway, interesting. Again, moving on. So new Macs have been spotted in a database. It looks like the M2, unsurprisingly. M2 Pro MacBooks will be coming. MacBook Pros will be coming anytime soon. This is what's been spotted in the database. I think it was in the Steam database, actually, is where people saw them, which is interesting. So Mac 14,6 and Mac 15,4 listed at 0.0% of, of the database with its, as spotted within Steam software. I'm pretty sure I read a thing years ago that you have to opt in to Steam stats to, for it to do the hardware collection and what's going on. So if you've got a new Mac, somebody's explicitly opted into the Steam database to do that. So that's a bit of a whoopsie by someone. Yeah, a bit of an odd one. They often come up like this. You, when you were talking earlier about Rosetta and we were talking about it, whether it, how long it will stay around for, Apple said it would be a two-year transition to go from Intel to Apple Silicon. Where's the Mac Pro? Yeah, it's going to miss the two years. They are going to miss the two years. They, they've been very quiet about the two-year window they've done everything but for some reason we haven't seen a map pro and i don't know why one if it's supply chain one if it's they want to get everything onto m2 and then the map pro will be the last m2 which kind of makes sense and i thought they would have done that by now but it just i don't know it seems very bizarre to me i think the bigger problem is we don't know what a mac pro looks like in this world the 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 Apple Studio, the Mac Studio, has muddied the water sufficiently that, you know, an extra big Mac Mini, effectively, has all the power, all the connections, all the stuff that you need in it. And what do people want from a Mac Pro? Probably PCI slots or something like that, where it's a bit more expandable in some way than than most, let's face it, very closed internally Macs are these days. So I think it's a difficult one for them to figure out exactly what a Mac Pro is, and it's the most niche product they make and always has been. You know, it's sound engineers want this. People who use lots of expandability want these. So it's interesting. I mean, it's not surprising we're beginning to see the next, you know, the M2 Max pop up in various databases and things. I'm surprised it's taken so long considering how long we've had M2 Silicon now. So, you know, it's good to see it. Probably means it's coming fairly soon, but, you know, interesting. And on that side note, the Mac Pro is three years old this month. And isn't it interesting that the last two Mac Pros have never had an upgrade? There's only ever been one model. So there's one model of the trash can, Intel Mac Pro, and one model of this Mac Pro. And then they've never done a variation on it. There's obviously different processes and graphics cards and storage medium that you can get in it. But they've never done another version, which I find really weird for the last two models. Maybe it is their Achilles heel and... It's just a device they've never quite got the right balance for. It's such a shame. You and I both had Mac Pros back in the day, the first generation Intel Mac Pros. And that is still one of the best computers I ever had. You know, it was bulletproof, that machine. It was massive. It was very heavy, but it was an amazing PC kit. I loved it. I had two screens on it, big desk, loved it. And it was my PC and my Mac in, in, in a one because you, you could do both with it. A fantastic device. I'm not in the market for Mac Pro at all. It's uh, the prices hit a point that I'm too uncomfortable with. And that's what the Mac Studio, I think, is, is filled in that sort of 1500 if you can get one for it, to 2000 to £2,500 gap. And obviously, they go a lot higher. But you can get them around the £2,000 point if you get a refurb. And that's where the Mac Pro used to come in. The, the base model was around 1500 to £2,000. And the Mac Studio has filled that hole, whereas the more recent Mac Pro, I can't remember what the entry was, but it was like four or £5,000. And so I think the Mac Studio is right, and we do need it, because they do need to address all ends of the market. And the Mac Studio will be pretty good for most people. Any serious professional will probably be able to work with that. Whereas I think the Mac Pro is really when you're pushing it, whether it's some form of crazy computing you're doing and modeling or rendering or whatever it may be, that's when you need the Mac Pro. And it, they, they've found another market, I think, with it. 
Yeah, I agree. So the Mac Pro, which is, as you say is three years old today, starts at five thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars, and but can go up to can be configured to fifty three thousand dollars on the on the Apple Store. That is an awful lot of money for. I mean, you're in serious server territory by the time you get to fifty three thousand. I'd want, I'd want a lot of compute for fifty three thousand. You know, I just can't even. I can't even imagine it. It's just yeah, it's just an insane amount of money. But if that's your job, is I don't know, to make render films and, and what have you, and you're going to make that money back, then it, it's it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing that you can take one piece of kit and scale it like that. Yeah, I agree. As you say, it is a definitely a bit of a, a problem for them, though, that they just keep making one Mac Pro that, you know, isn't, isn't good enough, really, is it? You know, it hits the boundaries of what's actually acceptable within that, that sort of shape. I mean, the trash can was constrained because of the thermals, as far as we know. And this is constrained because, well, there's no Apple Silicon to fit inside of it. Or it doesn't have the expandability or whatever is the particular holdup that they, they've yet to announce. So, yeah, interesting. And would it have done better if they had have revised the model every now and again and, you know, done one every two years or whatever the number may be? Yeah, it might have done. I, I don't know. Let's face it, it's based on Intel Xeons, isn't it? And I don't know how often Intel rev the Xeon. I presume there'll have been new Xeons produced since the Mac Pro came out because I'm not really looking at the server market in my current line of work like I used to. I, don't, I genuinely don't know what the new hotness is up there. But if you think lots of servers are looking at ARM chips now because they're cooler, you can get more in your data center, you can do all that kind of stuff. The Mac Pro is becoming a bit of an anachronism even there. You know, Again, I think if you do serious graphical workstation, and I'm thinking actually back to that YouTube video I posted with the fashion designer who his NVIDIA card and his PC was actually better at rendering stuff than an Apple Studio. Things like that don't make the, the Apple Silicon look particularly good when it comes to it. So there's a bit of thought to be had around it. Yeah, I'd agree. It's more thought. Anyway, interesting they're going to miss their own self-inflicted deadline, which you'd have thought they'd have been pretty confident they were going to hit when they came out with it. But you'd have thought it's what it is. They did talk about it at WWDC, didn't they? They said the Mac Pro's coming. Unless they're going to drop it before Christmas, but I can't see it happening in the next two two weeks. No, it's it would be the wrong time to do it. Wouldn't be unprecedented, but it's the wrong time. Anyway, moving on. This last little story is just a cool plugin to support striking workers. So this is a Chrome Firefox plugin. You can pick it up on GitHub. It's by a developer called James Pizzuro. And the point of it is you install it in your Chrome or your Firefox browser. And if you go to a shop where there are workers striking or a website where there are workers striking, this will notify you that the company is having trade union problems with its workers. There are people out in strike protesting about something and just notifies you that don't cross the virtual picket line. Don't read a review on the wirecard, for example. Maybe don't visit the G- buy tickets from British Rail when people are striking. I don't know if it'll work if the, when our nurses and things are on strike in a couple of weeks. Don't visit the NHS, but don't cross the picket line. I just think that's quite an interesting way to virtually support striking workers and a plug-in in a browser. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting. I think I'd use it because I doubt it doesn't work on my iPad, but I get, I, get, I get the concept. I'm not against it. It's just nice. Even if all you do is you click on the notification to learn more about what the strike is and what it's about, it's informing people what's going on within a company. And, you know, if it was Amazon or something like that, I think, or if you're on a computer, obviously not on an iPad, and it supports this. I think a little bit more knowledge is power for people. Organizations probably absolutely hate it. I'd agree with that. I think people... We don't know enough about what's going on with the companies that we deal with. You kind of need a plug-in for everybody you go with. Did you know that this company treats its workers badly or pays less than minimum wage or outsources everything and doesn't support its places where it's based or whatever it may be, but you, you get the concept. Yeah. 
Anyway, nice little plugin. It's amazing the things you can find in you know in in open source software, which is what this is. You know, that's supporting a useful plugin architecture, which will work in my lovely Arc browser, I must say. So I'm, I'm going to have a go at installing this and see how it goes. No, no, I need to play with that too. So many things to do. So many things to do. Good. Okay, I think that's it for the news. Unless you can think of something else. Uh, no, it's been a very quiet week. Good news though, Twitter seems to have calmed down a little bit. It does. The only story I've seen about Twitter this week is that when Twitter Blue comes along, and I think it's imminent, this will be the subscription service where you can notify users you've got a check mark that you you pay to use Twitter. It's what all the check mark ver- verifies you for all these days. Not you are who you say you are, but you've paid an amount of money. It's going to be more expensive on iOS than it is on other platforms, so Elon can miss the Apple tax. Awesome. Yeah, Which is well, interesting, seeing as you just met Tim Cook. Yeah, obviously that wasn't a thing for them. And obviously Tim Cook wasn't going to give any mileage at all on it. No, no, you pay what you pay the 30% Elon, so does everybody else. Yeah, and yeah, interesting that he's done that because I thought that was one of the things on the App Store that you had to make it the same price as everything else. I can't remember now. Well, the App Store's had an overhaul, and this isn't in our show notes, we should probably have talked about it, to allow developers to set more pricing points, as I understand it. There was before you could set a pricing tariff where you'd say i'm in the i'm free i'm 99p i'm four four fifty nine and whatever it is and it's sort of all within a price range for countries is what you'd set rather than i want to only pay 99 pence for my app whereas they've allowed many 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 more price points within that so i think you can actually charge a pound or five pounds or something like that all the way up to i want to say ten thousand pounds is the highest price tier yeah ten thousand dollars and it the lowest one starts at 29 cents i think so it kind of makes sense. The, the pricing structure has been in place for a long time. I did hear somewhere that this is linked to one of the lawsuits that they had on and they had to make this change as, as one of the outcomes of that as, as the ruling. Yeah, there we go. We did have two other stories we should have talked about, really. So uh, I'll try and get some links in the show notes. Should we move on to media? Let's move on to media. And I don't have an awful lot to talk about this week. I might be leaving it to you. I thought I'd just... We talked about it briefly on the show last week about the Sight and Sound Critics list of the top, new top 100 films. I thought just as follow-up for that, I'd give a, the top 10 and you can tell me how many of the top 10 you've seen. So I'll do my best. Casey Kasem or Top of the Pops, the downs are here and I'll count backwards from 10. In at 10 this year, Singing in the Rain, 1952. Man with a Movie Camera, 1929. Mulholland Drive from 2001-8. Beau Travail from 1998 was number seven. Number six, 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. Number five, In the Mood for Love from the year 2000. Number four, Tokyo Story from 1953. Number three, Citizen Kane from 1941. Number two, Vertigo from 1958. And at number one, an all new number one, Jean Dielman, 23, Quai de Commerce at 1080, Brussels at 1975. How many of them have you seen? 2001 A Space Odyssey, number six. I've seen that once, I think, and I really should watch it because I did buy the 4K version quite recently. But talking back about our films that have been updated recently, it's a pretty poor on my front. How about yourself? I have seen Vertigo at number two. I've seen Citizen Kane at number three. I've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey repeatedly at number six. I think I've seen Singing in the Rain. I don't really remember it. And I think I've seen Mulholland Drive and I don't really remember it. So I've done okay in the list, but two, I'm a bit vago. It's quite an interesting list. There's a lot of very old films in there. Interesting Mulholland Drive's in there because I remember when that came out in 2001. I, for whatever reason, never seen it. But I'm surprised that's in the list myself. I quite like my films. I, I watch a lot of films when I can. 
and I'm amazed I've seen so few of them. I expected, I don't know, I don't know what I expected in there, maybe. And I, th- I think Goodfellas is in like the top 100 kind of thing. I expected some more of those kinds of films to be higher up the list or The Godfather or something. And I know they're in there, but looking at the 100, there's very few I've actually seen. Yeah, in in the hundred, and maybe we'll I'll I'll post the the link to the whole list in in the show notes as well if I remember to do so. If not, I'll, I, I will uh, the week after. You know, there are some things that have been left out of the critics list that really surprised me, like Lawrence of Arabia, which is thought as one of the greatest films of all time, isn't in the top hundred films. So, and you know, there's always a discrepancy between what critics will choose, what the public will choose, and what directors will choose. And there is a director's list as well. Lawrence of Arabia is in the director's list. I mean. I can understand why critics have a, a broader overview of what is important cinema. And, all, and to be quite fair, one of the things I like about this list is how international it is. It's not just your big big budget Hollywood movies that are in this top 10. There are several of them, obviously. But obviously the number one film is a film from, from Holland in 1975. That's fantastic, I suspect. that you know It's not the Citizen Kane, which has been the unstoppable titan of cinema for a very long time. You should set yourself a bit of homework to watch Citizen Kane. I appreciated it for the construction of it. It was well ahead of its time for me in terms of its direction and its cinematography and its scripting. Things like there were no titles at the beginning. They just fire straight into the film. And that's very modern. You know, we've only really just started doing that in the last sort of eight to ten years. But, oh God, it drags. <laughs> it's, you know, in terms of a dynamic, interesting bit of cinema, I, I see what it was going for. I understand why it's as influential as it is, but I, I, I genuinely think it's quite overrated. Yeah, no, I understand. Have you seen the film Mank by David Fincher? Which is actually linked to Citizen Kane, and it's about the development of the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And I'm a big David Fincher fan, and I haven't seen Mank, but I would... I was going to go and watch Mank, but I thought, oh, before I watch Mank, I need to go and watch Citizen Kane. And for whatever reason, never did it. And that Mank came out in 2020, which was obviously a year when we were all at home and had probably time on our hands. So I'm kicking myself. I should really go and do that. I do like the fact that the list is international. You're right. We're probably too driven by largely American films, especially in the UK. So it is good to see a range, but it's an interesting range. And yeah, I think I need to go make an indent, I think is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'd like to have seen the top 10 films. You know, if nothing else in the list, I'd like to have seen the top 10 films. And I think the old, the most modern film in the whole list was Get Out, which is a 2018 or 19 film, I think. And I haven't seen that. Me neither. Yeah, so we're sort of showing how appalling our, our taste in cinema is, if nothing else here. But it's important, you know, these lists, the only published, Sight and Sound only publish this list every 10 years. So it's obviously quite considered when they go and do it it's not it's not a knee-jerk reaction to anything whereas when you look at sort of uh, Rotten Tomatoes for what the most popular films are Citizen Kane was at the top of that for a very long time do you know what knocked Citizen Kane off the top? I had no idea Paddington it is fantastic (laughs) it's a terrific film (laughs) but that shows the difference between film critics and the public really doesn't it? Paddington 2 fantastic family film 100% agreed it is a good all-round family film I watched with my young children they loved it. Mum and I loved it. You know, we just sat there, enjoyed it with the kids, had popcorn at the cinema. It was a great way to spend two hours. Fantastic. It's terrific, but it's not in the same vein as Citizen Kane. So, but, you know, I think this this is the wonderful thing about stuff like this. There is room for all these, and it is important you remember the culture of cinema. And, and something like Citizen Kane is a real marker in it. But times change, and Paddington 2 is a terrific film. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting, but it is good. Like you said, they only update it every 10 years. It's considered. 
Whereas when you get the annual lists and the and they're just tweaked every year, they're a lot more current and usually a lot more US or UK based. And this and is a t- well, sorry, sorry. And this is a tease for next week. I think we'll do our products and software of the year next week in time for Christmas. So we'll do our own top ten list. I think that sounds like some homework I've got to do. I'm, I'm going to struggle with top ten films. I think because there's been very I've sent this to my children. There's been very little out this year that we've rushed to see. I think what we'll do is. In the absence of people writing in and telling us what they think the you know the best Apple piece of software was, you say what your was, I'll say what mine was, and we'll have a small argument about which one was better, and we'll pick one. Sounds like a good idea. So rather than having to do ten in every category, we'll maybe do two in every category, and maybe an honourable mention. So uh, you can't go wrong with that. Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea because it has been, as we were just talked about news being quite uneventful in the last week. I think cinema wise, it's been very uneventful this year. Yeah. Fair enough. Good. Okay. Anything else to say about the top 10 list? No, I don't think so. But while we're talking about highbrow entertainment and top films rated by critics, I think you've got something to tell us that you've watched this year. This is what I've watched this week. So for some reason, I had a hankering to watch Airplane from 1980. It is a ridiculous film. Bits of it haven't aged all that well, but the the line I'll always remember with Airplane is, if you don't like a joke, there'll be another one along in a minute. It is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's fantastic a, it's a great line in a film full of really good lines that have sort of entered cultural consciousness you know surely you can't be serious i am serious and don't call me surely stuff like that have really they're just in the public eye these days it's, it's things people say as i say there's bits of it aren't as politically correct viewed with a modern eye but i, I don't think it's fair to judge cinema always with a modern eye some things absolutely should be but the majority of things are just a product of their time airplane is a product of its time I think it holds up quite well, actually. It's still a pretty funny movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it for a long time. I do remember watching Airplane and Airplane 2 and also the Naked Gun series. Fantastic in the time. And I'm sure there'll be some things in there that just haven't aged well. I, I don't disagree with that statement. But they're, they're like I say, a product of the time with culture of their time, I guess, is the, is the right thing. So I don't disagree with that. I would like to go and watch it, actually, because I think I would quite enjoy it. Just as something that's not taking itself very seriously at all decidedly no lots of good sight gags lots of things going on in the background just some very funny humor it doesn't take it serious and it's really short it's like you know 72 minutes or something like that you can nearly fair in the lunch hour you absolutely could so that's my little thing this week i have watched almost nothing else i was just going to make one comment about the apple tv plus show that i tried to watch echo 3 there was a review in the guardian sorry the observer i should say this morning that it was great, five stars. So maybe my taste is not very good, but I couldn't get through the first episode. Yeah, you're clearly not aligned with your newspaper of choice. Clearly not. But they said, uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was worth watching. It was quite thoughtful and all the rest of it. Maybe I need to go back and finish the first episode and really give it a fair crack of the whip. Yeah, well, I do need to try that one. But whilst we're talking Apple TV+, Plus, have you watched Slow Dogs yet? I have not. It's fantastic episode three very good i love it all i've i'm really enjoying it the acting is superb it's fantastic watch it yeah i it, it's definitely on my to-do list that you know there's this uh, as we've talked about repeatedly there's lots of things to watch this has been one of those weeks i just haven't had a chance to do very much and i so I, the reason i watched airplane is it was a brain off week for me i've it's been quite busy with work you know we all have weeks like that so i just wanted something completely where i didn't need to think about it and just chuckle along so if i'm not watching taskmaster then it's going to be something like that this week so uh, airplane for me i did mean to mention i will watch slow horses certainly in the period leading up to new year when i've got a bit more time through not being at work and hopefully things calming down a little bit 
There was an, a film released on Apple TV Plus this week. It's called Emancipation with Will Smith. It looks like a serious contender for Oscar season if he hadn't embarrassed himself at the Oscars last year and maybe stopped himself ever getting nominated again. Again, as we've talked about before, I don't necessarily know that that means it's not a worthy film. Uh, it's not high on my list of things to watch, I will be honest, but I think I feel like I should give it a go. It's filmed in black and white from what I can see. It's available on Apple TV Plus now. You like a film. Is this something you're going to check out? Yeah, probably. It I've seen bits of it. It didn't look right up my street, but I think I should watch it. Like you say, I do like Will Smith. If it is going to be Oscar nominated, I feel like I should watch it. Am I right in thinking though they've made it so anybody can watch Emancipation? I, th I thought I'd, I'd seen that somewhere. I can't remember where. So I need, I, I'll see if I can find a link to put in the show notes. But I thought I saw something saying it's now available for everybody, but I may be misremembering. I do know they've released it in cinemas, which really makes me think is why it's going to be Oscar potential because you, it's got to be in a theatre for it to be considered for as the, for, by the for the Oscars, doesn't it? But maybe they're just going for best picture rather than best actor. Well, I, like you say, I wonder whether Will Smith will ever be at the Oscars again. I don't know. That's an interesting one, or maybe they actually make a, sh a show of it and 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 face into it. I suppose words I'm looking for and do a public apology and all of that. I don't I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that either. Anyway, it's there. It, like I say, it, it certainly looks like a tour de force sort of production and I should maybe try and make the effort to watch it, but it's there on Apple TV if anybody's looking for it. Have you got anything else in media that we've missed? The only thing I was going to say then, so the bit piece of news I saw about being able to watch it for free is following a similar promo with Selena Gomez in November, Apple is once again giving away two-month free trials of Apple TV Plus to anyone who wants one. This time in partnership with Will Smith as the promotion for the premiere of Emancipation. Fair yep. enough. Yeah, get in there and watch For All Mankind. And Severance is fantastic. Severance is fantastic. Anyway, moving on. Games. In a similar vein to media, I haven't had an awful lot of chance to try very much this week. One thing that did catch my eye was Dead Cells Plus. So this is a side-scrolling hack-and-slash thing, if you're old enough, in the vein of Prince of Persia, of one of those. It's, the artwork is very good. The music is very good. I decided to try it out on Apple TV, so I paired a PlayStation 4 controller to it. Works beautifully. Scrolls really well. Lots of fun. Quite thoughtful. Great music. Thoroughly enjoying it. We'll go back and visit. Haven't spent enough time on it, frankly. Still playing a bit of Midnight Suns. Still playing probably a little bit too much Call of Duty, but I won't go on about that. I've done that a lot on this podcast. Yeah, Dead Cells Plus. Check it out. Interesting. So I was just looking up on my phone because um, when you search for Dead Cells, Dead Cells that you can buy for $7.99 comes up first. And you have to scroll down three games and then you get Dead Cells Plus for free. This reminds me a colleague of mine used to play on the Nintendo Switch pre-pandemic i'm going to say it was a long time ago when we were in the office and his lunch i'd spend playing dead cells it's brought back to that mobile and switch era i guess of games can be ported between the two platforms quite happily by the looks of it. yeah absolutely I, I i think if the developer puts in that little bit of work to get it to work on those kind of and let's face it a 2d scroller is perfect for something that lacks a little bit in graphical quality so i mean the apple tv plus that i was trying sorry the apple tv i was trying it on is an older one it is a 4k one but it's a, the first generation 4k one so i don't know even though what that is a12 possibly chip I'm, I'm i just made a made a number up there i think it is an a12 though and it coped with that very very well i think the problem with that box is there's probably not enough storage as i was sitting playing it i was thinking why can't i have apex legends on my ipad work on this apple tv then because it's quite a big install and i suspect they don't have enough hard disk space effectively ssd space on my Apple TV to have it. But every so often, it reminds me that it could be a pretty decent console, the Apple TV, and they don't really sell it as such for whatever reason. But yeah, it, it looks fantastic, Dead Cells. If you've got, if, you, if, you, if you're hankering to spend £8 in a game and you don't have an Apple, TV, an Apple, Apple One subscription, 
Dead Cells is a good place to start. Things like Oceanhorn are very good on the Apple TV as well, if you're looking for like a Zelda alike. There are some decent games available on Apple TV, and you can try them all out on your iPad as well. First Apple TV 4K had an A10, the second one had an A12, and the most recent one has an A15. So very close to the phones at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So I agree with you. I think the Apple TV could be a good console, but for whatever reason, and I think if they shipped it with a controller, would have helped it massively. I think that was a mistake. I agree. It was interesting the process of pairing a PlayStation controller to again, actually. The reason this Apple TV is, well, it's in the room behind me as we're talking, actually, is because the controller stopped working. The old, I, I would lose it as soon as Lucas at flat controller that you couldn't tell which way was up with it. Just stopped working one day, probably because it kept getting lost and got fed up. Pairing the PlayStation controller to it let me control the Apple TV with the PlayStation controller. I could control the interface, I could use the PlayStation button as a home screen. It means I didn't need to flip up my phone and use the remote app, which is what I've been using in there. So that's actually quite a nice added benefit. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I've never really used my controllers with the Apple TV, so it makes sense. Yep, so that's me, Dead Cells this week. Okay, for me, just still Gran Turismo 7, still playing it. But what I thought was interesting is something my son showed me on the game. So they're having a big blitz on Gran Turismo because it's 25 years of Gran Turismo. And up in the top right corner of the game, there's a 25th icon. I didn't click on it because I thought it was all about online gaming. I wasn't that fast, but my son clicked on it. He goes, Dad, Dad, I just want a million pound car for free just by clicking on this. And I, so I went and did the same, obviously, straight away because I was like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not, not having a free car. And then click through it and there's some really good races. There's two races in there. You can win a million pounds each. And they're not online. They're just some extra races they've put in with some credits. And I thought I should be more inquisitive about the stuff that gets added to GT7 where I'm just thinking it's all online and bits I don't really want to do. So there you go. That was it. Maybe I should reinstall it and check it out. The, the amount they keep adding to the game is fantastic. Some cars keep coming and going. You can now sell some cars. So I've been selling my duplicate cars. The way they do the marathon, so every day, if you drive the distance of a, of a marathon, i.e. 26 point something miles, you then win a roulette prize. And I think that's a great way of making you come back frequently. And my son's grasping now. He goes, oh, if I come back every day and just play it for a little bit, I will earn a ticket, which usually wins me some money or a car or some engine components. And so it's a really good way of making the game stickier. And it has worked on me as well, because I think, well, I just do a race, I'll win a ticket and I'll win some money for the race, hopefully. And so I'm slowly moving the game along. And it's, I think it's a great sticky mechanism to make you play frequently. Fair enough. And you're not having to pay for it either. You're not, you know, if you're not buying in, in-game currency, as we talked about before, then that's a good thing. You can do that, I believe. I've never done it and I just skip over that. But I spent £70 on that game, which I was a bit upset about at the time. But I actually don't regret any of it. I've played it a huge amount and my son has. So, yeah, I, I'm loving the additional content they're doing. I, th- I think they're doing it really well. And the, the quality, they've added a track recently. It's, you'd think it's part of the original game. The, the quality of what they're adding is fantastic. That's good. It's a long tail on the game. Cool. I think that's it for games. Yep. Main show. Main show. So we've got two big, t- well, one big topic and just, a, it's, I could almost have gone and follow up. I swithered about it. So it's just two th- topics I talked about before. Last week, I said it was my daughter's birthday this week and she was going to get a new Apple piece of kit. What we've ended up guessing her is a, an iPhone 14, which I said nobody should buy. They should buy an iPhone 13. But on balance, when you take into the fact that she's never had a new phone, she's only ever had cast-offs or she's only ever had from refurb stores and things like that. Gifgaff was, for example, do good deals on second-hand phones in a variety of conditions. 
I felt it was time she got a new phone just for herself out of the box brand new. It was also the only one that was available in purple. They didn't do a purple last year, they did do the year before. She really wanted a purple phone. So it's we've talked about colours and how important they are to people before and that is actually a, absolutely a factor. So it was her birthday on Friday, she got her new phone, she was delighted. She didn't take it out of the box immediately because we didn't buy a case with it so she was waiting for a case to come along as well. The case still hasn't come, ordered it from Amazon, still not appeared. Apparently it could be anytime up to 10 o'clock tonight so we'll see how that goes. But yesterday she started the process of moving her phone over and I just thought this was worth recounting. So we're watching a little bit of Bad Sisters actually. So you know keeping the whole Apple loop going, that was on in the background while we were watching it. She kicked this off, she got to the stage where it said do I do a phone to phone transfer or do I use iCloud backup? I told her to do a phone to phone transfer because she wouldn't need to put her passwords and all this kind of stuff. It was going to take about two hours. I figured an hour watching Bad Sisters while this was going, that would be perfect. I thought about this for a little bit. She entered her Apple ID. She did the scan, the 3D barcode thing to set things going. Thought about it for a while, maybe 35 minutes later with no sign of a progress bar or anything other than continue on your new phone. It just gave up and said, I can't complete this. Do you want to restart from scratch? Wiped the phone and went back to the original point. Wow, that's so good. Because you thought a lot of the original setup problems would have been related to new iPhone day. If people are trying to do it on the same day. That, that's what I was about to say. <coughs> it sounds very similar. Your daughter had what I had experienced. But yeah, I bought mine on day one. And I think my problems were because I was on day one. So it's really disappointing that she's got that today. Yep, it was really bad. So she had to completely reset her new phone, start the whole process again from the beginning. She put in her iPhone, her Apple ID and all the rest of it. This time she tried to do an iCloud backup because she didn't want to sit there and wait all this time. I said, well, it'll just be okay. You just might need to put in some passwords and things again. Thought about it for about 10 minutes, fired up a dialogue going, some of the purchases on this phone weren't made from your iCloud account. And the only thing I can think of was because it's a family account and I've bought some of the things under my iCloud ID and it threw a spanner in the works again. It did give you the option to skip it, which I told her to do, and it's gone ahead and gone through it. But neither of those things are particularly good when it comes to setting up a new phone. I don't think it was a great first run experience. No, especially when you just bought something brand new, Apple pride themselves on it just works. I didn't have a great experience. Your daughter's not had a great experience. It's not good, is it? It's really not. And it was funny, as she was clicking through it, there was the send analytics to Apple screen which we've talked about that, you know, they're just sending the analytics to Apple as far as we know. I said, it doesn't matter what you pick, Em. You know? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. They always lead to yes. You may as well just say yes, because they're just going to take it anyway. Yeah, I, I was a bit disappointed, really. It, it, yeah, disappointing. It is hard moving devices. It's certainly the thing when we have to do at work for senior directors and things. It's horrible because you know how painful it could be. I, yeah, I don't, don't enjoy it at all. So she went from an iPhone 11 to an iPhone 14, so a decent upgrade. Um, That's a massive upgrade. She her, her review so far is, the front-facing camera is brilliant. She likes the look of the other cameras, she doesn't use them so much. The TikTok generation, Snapchat generation only really use the forward-facing camera because they've always got themselves in it, so she says that's good. She says the battery is phenomenal. So setting your expectations to a realistic thing from coming from a truly three-year-old phone to a new one with a brand new battery, even if it's not been fully charged all the way, for all of our disappointment in the iPhone 14 and your disappointment, I know, in the iPhone 14 Pro's battery, having that experience of a much older phone that really couldn't make it to sort of 10 o'clock, 10.30 in the morning before it needed a charge is a real eye-opener. friend at work's got an iPhone 14 regular and he has equally commented, the battery is fantastic, was his words. It is 
It's just a non-event for him. It's so good. So I'm not surprised. Good. So that's the iPhone 14. If they've got updates down the line, I will pass them on for her experience with it. What I am looking forward to both of you trying is the satellite thing when it's available in the UK, just to see if that sort of setup demo for, for the satellite thing actually works. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I think that's coming at some point soon. They did say within the next couple of months, didn't they? So maybe in the new year we'll be able to check that out. Okay. Cool. My second bit of follow-up, I talked on the show, I was maybe going to buy some new Sonos speakers during the Black Friday sales if I'd seen them on sale for a decent enough price, with the idea being I'd use them as rear surrounds for my Sonos Beam. I had to think about that for a minute. Sonos Beam is the center speaker I've got in the living room under the good TV. Sonos offered me a 30% off upgrade pricing because I bought a Play 5 years and years ago. I got the offer by email. I clicked on it and yep, they gave me 30% off, which I was very, very pleased with. So I purchased two One SLs, which are their small sort of single speaker. They're £180 normally, I think, £179, something like that, 99 They don't contain a microphone. The Sonos One without the SL does contain a microphone, so you can shout hey dingus at it. I didn't want that, I just wanted them to be dumb surround. Plugged them in, beautiful design by the way, they're nice and weighty, they come in a nice bag, you can order them in black or white. The power cable actually sits in the bottom, so there's a groove in the bottom of the speaker, you run the power cable along, you can plug in an external power supply to it there, and then it just ends in a three pin socket. That is the only cable on the device. You, they do have ethernet ports, if you want to plug ethernet into them you can do that as well, but I haven't, I went with wireless setup. One on the left, one on the right, fired up the app, saw them straight away, updated them. Next, next, next. Do you want to set these up as rear surrounds? Yes, please. Played a couple of tones, worked out where they were in the room. Done. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And this, what, what does SL stand for? Because this, this has annoyed me for a while now. Solo? Don't know. Because <laughs> I, I, I looked at them when they were on sale on Black Friday. And I wasn't really looking to buy, I was just browsing some deals. I was like, what is this? What's the difference? And I was like, it was not obvious to me what the difference was. Like you, though, I'd have probably gone for the SL variant. Yeah, I think it's literally just to differentiate them from the ones with the microphones. You can shout hey dingus at them. Hmm. Okay. It's just a rubbish name, in my opinion. Well, they're about 20 or 30 quid cheaper than the ones with the microphone in. So that's, that's a differentiator as well. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm, I'm quite keen on this because I was thinking actually in our lounge, We've just got a soundbar in there and actually I was thinking maybe we, when I swap the TV out in there, maybe it'll be time to, to put something like this in. I don't really want to run any cables in that room, but this might be a neat way of having some rears, which are a little expensive, but not crazy. No, they're not crazy. And I will say the AirPlay experience is really impressive on them as well. So I've got a mix of AirPlay devices now. I've got, you know, obviously the HomePods. I've got the, the Beam was already an AirPlay 2 speaker. These are AirPlay 2 speakers. You've got your phone and whatever else is around the place. I've got a Denon amp downstairs. It's also an AirPlay 2 receiver. When you're listening to your music, so we did, we were putting the decorations up this week, you know, want Christmas music in a couple of rooms in the house, hit play, bring up the AirPlay menu, and you can just tap on the rooms where you've got the devices. And it didn't matter if it was an Apple device or a Denon device or these Sonos devices, they were all just in the AirPlay zone and the Christmas music was just flooding through the house and all these things. I'd forgotten how nice that was, actually. And these sound terrific. They sound absolutely fantastic. My test film or my test piece of film, just as I was setting up to make sure they sounded okay, it was unfortunately the Phantom Menace, the pod racing sequence for the Phantom Menace, because it's a real good workout of an audio surround system. That I, I'm really impressed. They just work. They do exactly what they say in the tin. Yeah, the Sonos do make some good equipment, and I'm amazed they've kept plugging away in the background. 
they've let Amazon and Alexa have their day, they've let Apple have their day, and they've just carried on. And I think they're probably having a bit of a resurgence because they are famed, I think, for quality, ease of use. Would have been a natural fit for Apple to have purchased, I think, and rolled in, but didn't. So I, I think it's good. I do like their equipment. I've had a bunch of their Play 5s years ago and Play 1s, which are very similar, I think, to what you're talking about. I think they're great. They've always made really good hardware. And they've, they've stuck at doing what they do best. And they've actually got quite a suite now of products. I did look again at Rome, actually, because I thought that'd be quite nice to have. Like out in the garden and stuff, if we just wanted some background music on. I, For whatever reason, just it didn't quite hit a price point I was comfortable with and left it. I was also annoyed that the Rome SL doesn't come in different colours. You could have black or white. And I was like, well, I actually wouldn't mind a bit of colour for something that I might have out and about and put on the patio table or something. But I didn't really want to pay the extra to have the microphones that I don't really want either. Yeah, I guess that's fair comment. I mean, they're a bit Apple-like in that way. You can have it in black or you can have it in white and nothing more interesting comes as way. I know they do the HomePod and a few more, HomePod Mini in a few more colours, but certainly the original HomePod was only in a couple of things. Black or white's fine. At least you get a choice. You know, the thing is, it's a very well-made speaker as far as I'm concerned. I suspect if you were to log into your Sonos account, you'd find the same 30% upgrade offer waiting for you once you log in. You don't necessarily need to wait for an email. When I logged in, it was sat there waiting for me. So if you were looking to upgrade at some point, you can sort of pick the, the products they think you've got. So it might be worth you having a look on your Sonos account for that. Yeah, I'm very pleased with them, i got to say. And the fact it's making me think, actually, I wouldn't mind getting a few more around the house for some of the other rooms, actually. And the portable speakers, which is what you're talking about, they're Bluetooth speakers, actually, effectively. The Roam and things like that also look interesting. They are quite expensive, though. But then they sound really good. So, you know, it's it, in all things a balance. Yeah, I don't mind paying for it if I'm going to use it. And I'd rather pay for it once rather than buy a cheap one that you have for five months, then breaks, and then you then replace again. So I'd rather pay once and do it properly. So I'll, I'll give it some thought. Have a thing. Anyway, links in the show notes for those that are interested to my center speaker, which is a Beam, which the links there too, and these one SL speakers as well. They do a whole range of things. None of them are very cheap. All of them sound very, very good. And in the same way that the HomePods can be paired together, if you buy two of ones, if you desperately want stereo sound for another room, you can do that with these one SLs. It's not the cheapest way of doing it, but they sound pretty good. Yeah, I do like this stuff. Now, and the Beam equally looks great. And they've got great design. I do like the design. Very simple, very minimal. It's good stuff. Yeah, and as you sort of alluded to, it just works, is the thing. It just works. Yeah, they have got that ethos, I think. They do. Good. Okay, moving on. So the second story is one we want to at least touch on, even if we don't do the most exhaustive job in the world. And the big story this week is to iOS 16.2, the release candidate. I've got that right, haven't I, at 16.2. Apple has added end-to-end encryption to more of its services. And and the, we'll give you some links here on how to turn on. So previously there were 14 data characters within iCloud that were protected with end-to-end encryption. This new feature brings that count to 23 and now includes notes, photos, voice, memos, reminders, Safari bookmarks, and iCloud backups of the contents of your devices. Not everything is encrypted in this way though. Critically, calendar and mail are untouched as Apple says they are not covered because of the need to interoperate with global email, contacts, and calendar systems. And the link to the Verge article this comes from is Ars Technica articles that we'll be talking about in there. So on the surface, this is a good thing, right? More things end-to-end encrypted, particularly when we've talked about some of the data breaches we've had recently. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting they've come out with this. There was no hint that this was coming they've cracked on in essence in the background and slowly been working on this i think it's fantastic the amount of stuff that is now going to be end-to-end encrypted which means that even they can't get into it 
They, there's no back door. They don't hold the, the security keys to get into it. Only you will. I'm really interested by it. And I, I wanted to go turn it on and have a play with it. But but you can't yet in the UK. I think it's coming some point next year. It's on in the States at the moment. But it just looks like a great thing. Nobody's really asked Apple to do it. It's not been pushed. I think it's quite good they're doing it in this day and age. And obviously you and I were talking last week about how I was going to back up my photos and what happens if ever my account got hacked and so on and so forth. And this is another way of that, that hopefully mitigating your account getting breached as it were so i think it's good i kind of wanted them to do mail calendar and was it on contacts because whilst i get there you need to work with global things if you're somebody like me that just uses it on your ipad and your iphone they could be end-to-end encrypted too and i'd be quite comfortable with that because i don't use any other apps other than theirs so it's a shame you can't opt those ones in and opt them out if you wanted to if that makes sense but maybe they were worried that they'd come under scrutiny for being, you know, a monopoly, say, if they were forcing people to use the email on, on their own systems. So, so I, I, I do get it. And I'm glad that hasn't stopped them doing everything else, if that makes sense. It's an interesting list of things. And, you know, the, the, what as you say, I can understand the reasons for not doing mail contacts and calendars. And there is a, still a certain amount of encryption when it's on the server, I think. It doesn't have the, it, it's, it's got standard data protection. It doesn't have this new advanced data protection. So, the things they've added to this, you know, photos, that, that's probably a good thing. So hopefully that will obviate the scenario where somebody installs the Windows iCloud thing and can see somebody else's photos. If they're end-to-end encrypted now, hopefully that will stop that. And that makes me wonder if that's why they were so quiet last time about not giving any response to this as they had a fix in the works. But I still think they should have said something. They should have said something. And whilst this is a fix, not everybody's going to turn this on immediately. I mean, you've seen it. You go around and fix somebody's phone and the amount of security things they don't do or turn on. It's also interesting with messages because messages in the cloud is always turned off by default. So maybe this is a way of them enabling enabling messages by default because I'm always like, no, I want it all synced in the cloud. Why wouldn't I? Mm. And I guess this is maybe why people didn't want it because then it's not encrypted when it's on their servers. So I think it's really good. And there's also an option to say you don't want your data to be accessible through iCloud.com. You know, you can turn it off so your photos aren't there and what have you. So they're, they're really pushing forward on the security stuff. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm keen to do it. And I've got one of those hardware Yubi keys. So that is something you will need for this, I believe, in that to unlock it. In essence, you need a hardware key. And that's something that I do have. It's like a small USB key. You can put it into your iPad or you can do N- NFC and hold it near your phone. And you can get ones that have got USB-C on one end and Lightning on the other. And I use that for my one password account as my mechanism to secure it. I want to use it for my Microsoft account for work, but that facility isn't available on an iPad yet, but it's apparently coming. And I would love to use it on my Apple account. I think if I could secure my Apple account, my work account and my one password account that's pretty much my three main accounts have got my life in if that makes sense so i quite like where this is going it does then make me question should i buy a second yubikey and lock it in my safe so that i've got a proper you know break glass get out of jail solution in case i did lose my car keys or, or whatever it is yeah, there's a lot to think about there, isn't there? I mean, one of the requirements, I, I do want to talk about YubiKeys because we use them at work as well. But So as I understand it, to have this to work properly, it needs all devices capable of running iOS 16.2. If you've got any device that isn't running iOS 16.2, like an old iPhone in a drawer somewhere that's still syncing to iCloud, you can't turn this on. You need to deal with that device in some way, shape, manner, or form first. Yeah, and it's not just iPhones, it is macs ipads tvs everything i do think that 16.2 is going to be the driver to get a bit upgrade because also if you want to upgrade your home you're going to need to upgrade 
they've reached a 16.2. So I think this and the home piece is going to be a big driver for everybody to clean up their accounts and get everything upgraded. Yeah, I think you're quite unusual in having the YubiKey. My inclination is that most people resisted even turning on the two-factor thing when they want to add, sign in again to another part of iCloud. In fact, as I think of my family, I think some of my family are still quite resistant to doing that. And if you've got an iCloud account, such as a family one that we do have, and there's one person in that chain that isn't sort of willing to upgrade for one mission or four, it's probably going to hold up bits of this, you know, going forward. So I can see issues around that. Returning to the YubiKey briefly, that's interesting, but I think I'd find, as somebody who uses a YubiKey for work, for accessing some of our services, I think I'd find it too restrictive all the time. If I wanted to access a password on my phone when I'm out and about and I don't have my YubiKey on me, am I screwed in that scenario? No, you're not. It only asks every now and again, or if you set up your 1Password account, say, on your new device. So you don't need it every time you log in. You still have your 1Password password, as it were. And so I'm assuming this will work in the same way. If I was getting a new phone, I'd need my YubiKey. But if I've got my current phone and I'm just logging in and doing something, or I'm not doing anything like turning off this setting, I wouldn't need my YubiKey. I just need my password, if that makes sense. So you don't need it for everything. It's more just that hardware piece. If you're, like I say, going to have a new device, or setting something up, or making a, a an account change. I don't think you'd need your whole family to upgrade because it's just about your account. Yeah, but if you're so using if, okay. if you're using your photo messages, you know, family sharing thing that's now on. Surely there's more than just your account that's using it. At the point you share a link with somebody that's outside of this, then the encryption gets weaker, right? But it's the same though. If I text you and I've got it turned on, you haven't, and it's on iMessage then the messages I send you aren't encrypted, are they? Just my half of the conversation is end-to-end encrypted, your half isn't. I assume it will be the same for photos as well, in that my half of the shared album with my wife will be encrypted and her half won't. You're right, though. It's interesting to see how it's going to play through, but I'd probably push my wife's account to move over to this as well once I've dog-fooded it because I'm keen that her data is protected too. I spend all this time worrying about sorting myself out. I want to pass that on to my family too. It's hard, though. Because they don't necessarily want some of the, the pain. No, they don't want any of the pain. And this is where it all begins to fall apart as I'm with you. I'd be my inclination would be to turn advanced data protection on because why wouldn't I want all of the things encrypted as much as I could to protect my security? But the weakest link in your security is probably not you. The weakest link is in your security is that link that you shared that somebody posted to Facebook that had a copy of something in. And then, not that there's anything other than, I don't know, family pictures in there or something like that. I'm not suggesting there's anything dodgy going on. But that's the weak link in the chain. Because Facebook, depending on what happens with Meta, are tracing that, storing that, put that information out there. And they're still able to put pieces of your data life together from that. So there's always a weak link in the chain. And you, obviously, you should do everything you can to strengthen it as much as possible. But being devil's advocate about it you can continue to ramp up the security on your side. But there's a friends and family level tolerance level that they won't go anywhere near. And I, I breached mine with my family ages ago. Just getting them to install software updates in a fairly regular way, I felt was a bit of a win. So, you know, stuff like this, I think, is important. And Apple should be doing it. This is what they should have been doing right for years and years and years. I think they're behind Android on this, actually. Android end-to-end encrypts far more things than Apple have up to this point. And they're still not doing it anywhere else but the United States at this point on a beta. Oh, sorry, on a release candidate. But that tension between where we push people to be and where we think they should be. Don't use the same password on every site. Use a password manager. Do this. Do that. Update your software. Make sure your browser's patched. And, and then you log into the machine and they've still got 
Chrome to be updated in the top right corner or whatever it is that you see when you go there. That that that, that tension is hard. You know, to, it's a hard problem to deal with. Uh, I'd agree. So last Christmas we had my parents round, my wife's parents round, and some other family members, and I got them all around the dining table. I upgraded all their phones to whatever the latest iOS version was. I got Lexi contacts added into every one of their accounts, so we did have that. I printed off the details, put them in my safe, just because they were all together. I was like, you know what? I could get this all done in a one. The problem I've got this year is they've all got phones that won't run iOS 16. So now I'm thinking, ah, oh, how do I get them a newer iPhone that will run a newer? OS without spending thousands of pounds. And so that's something I've got to deal with at a point in time. But I do get it. So software, I normally grab my children's devices and my wife's device and upgrade it for them. And I think 16.2 will make me do this to get all the home stuff sorted. And I will probably just turn this on for them and get it done. But I usually do it when they're busy doing something else or the children in bed, up their devices. Same with my wife's phone. I sort it out for her, her watch, just to keep everything moving along because I want to keep everything current as much as possible. And occasionally I'll show my wife something and she'll benefit from one of the new features, like the shared photo album that's landed well. I was on the tube the other day with my wife and it's rare we've been in London and she was going to go on the tube and she was double clicking the button to get her card up. I said, no, no, you don't need to do anything. You just literally hold your watch on it as you walk past. And and it and it works automatically because you get the express travel thing. And it just messed with her mind. And But I'm glad I had set all these things up in the past ready for her just in case we went to London one day or wanted to travel. So I try and do a lot of it for my for my immediate family and then for our extended family whenever i get my hand on their devices but it is hard isn't it it's really hard to you know drive forward to good secure hygiene with your family members you spend all day doing it at work for people and then you do it when you come home i don't always want to do it no there is no escape and yeah i, I it's it's a good thing on balance it's good that they're making these advances in encryption you know we've criticized them a lot on this show for their position recently on privacy and then not putting their money where their mouth is and actually getting on and doing it so i'm glad that they're doing this i think it's a bit of a shame that other things such as the airdrop turning off after 10 minutes in china are still you know that's something they've still bowed on that you know that that particular feature which was coming on is still a thing in china you know the airdrop yeah it is now turned it on for the whole country for everybody it's coming in 16.2 yeah it'll turn off after 10 minutes yeah yeah so that's not good enough do you not think no. or, or would you rather do you should have an option to leave it on all the time. So if you are you are trying to share that information in times of protest and things like that, which is what they were using in Hong Kong and China, you know, they've only, t- okay. they've turned that on for one nation state to decide that, you know, that that's the way it should be when they're trying to communicate in the absence of Wi-Fi and you know, what's, what's happening next on mass in a protest movement. I'm sure in Iran, it would be very useful as well for protesters at the moment to default it to switch off after 10 minutes isn't good enough. It's just an option in a checklist. They're doing it to satisfy one government. And I don't like that. No, I get you there. And they have now rolled that setting out as we to talked everyone. about the other to everybody. Yeah. And which I think is right. And it was probably it's one of those things that's been in the iPhone for a long time and probably should have been changed years and years and years ago, relative of what it was being used for. It's one of those things where Apple wasn't thinking as securely as as well it is now. Hmm. I got issues with it. So I, I give them a solid seven out of ten here, I think. I think they've done they've gone a long way to where they should have gone. It does make the walls of the walled garden a bit taller, though, you know, when you when you're putting all these things into one place and you're requiring people to have a software update to do it. Is there really no way it could have been done on one version of hardware before if you can bake it into this version of the release? I suspect it probably could have been, but they're sort of using it as a push to get people to upgrade devices and things again as well. So that's why I'm only giving them seven out of ten. You know, it doesn't bother us. We upgrade devices fairly frequently, but as you point 
point out there's family members that are probably still running around, around with 5s's and 6's and things like that and, and older ipads that would really benefit from something like this amazing that so much my family run ios 15 and obviously i'm trying to get them to 16 at some point as and when i can but i'm amazed yeah i've got so many people there i did see an article the other day saying 70 percent of the ios user base is on 16 mm. which is amazing considering it's only been out such a short period of time it just doesn't have the fragmentation of other systems no that's great I, and i read an article the other day about windows 11 still hasn't hit the market penetration of windows 10 because everybody's hanging around on Windows 10 and Windows 7 at this point, even though Windows 7 is well out of you know patch being covered by patches. So yeah, they do a good job of pushing people along to update. I was at an IT conference the other week. The company I work for is the one of the first FTSE 250s to be Windows 11 only. <laughs> and I see that as a positive that we are pushing ahead. And the pushback I had around the table with lots of other people doing the same role as me, is it, is it not painful? Did your users not get upset? Was it cause lots of support issues basically no for us we rolled it out to three thousand people and we ba barely received any complaints about the start button being in the middle the first complaint we had was it took a little while to install which is fairly standard but our, our user base has got used to every month there will be updates you're going to install them and we're going to make you and so actually windows 11 to three thousand people in nine months was a non-event i think there's less of a problem with an operating system than what people use to do their jobs so if you live in Word all day and you move everything around in Word, then you're going to have more of a problem than where the start button is. We do install the Word and the, well, the Office updates and they keep moving stuff and changing splash screens and moving buttons around and Outlook's looking very different because I've stopped using Windows, but I looked over at my colleague's Windows device and I was like, whoa, what's going on with Outlook? And they are trying to, it feels like they're trying to dumb down the Outlook on Windows to match more of the simple version on the iPad and the iPhone, which kind of makes sense because there's a lot of craft in Outlook on Windows that has just been there for 20 years. We, we're going along this week, but you're going to hear my personal binge about Outlook. Outlook on the Mac, the current version, the modern version, doesn't let you do distribution lists. What, make your own? Yeah, I can't record a distribution list in my context. So if you, there's seven people are committee X and just email them every time. I could do it in the old Outlook on my Mac. I have to switch back to the old version of Outlook to send to a distribution list. It's completely ridiculous. I've never had that on my iPad, so I wouldn't know because there's no contact section in Outlook on your on your iPad. So for me, it's not a feature I'm missing, but I wouldn't mind that feature because there are some ad hoc groups I would like to have. I guess they're going to push you to Teams for that. But that you know, when you're working with lots of agencies that don't necessarily use Teams, so for example. A couple of representatives for a charity, a couple of representatives in NHS Trust, a couple of representatives from university, all using different systems at different levels of encryption. Some use Teams, some use Zoom, some all have an email address. All I want to do is email eight people from three different organizations, please, and it won't let me do it. I completely agree with you, by the way. I think it's feature missing and also explains why email isn't in this advanced data protection piece because it is a universal protocol. So loop us back to where we started. We're back where we started. So I'm going to finish my thought on this. It's very good altogether. And one thing, having knocked them for the Chinese turning off the airdrop thing, this now has a feature to stop man-in-the-middle attacks in iMessages. So if it looks like somebody's device has changed, it will be notifying the people, if you're a journalist or you're a politician or, or something like that, that there's potentially an attacker in the middle of your end-to-end -end encrypted conversation using very sophisticated things. I, haven't, I don't know the exact details of it, but uh, these things can obviously have a level of personalized hacking 
them as well. You know, if somebody's devices were stolen, they're sat with a gun to their head. You want to know that the device keys have changed. And I think most messaging services do that these days. Certainly I use Signal for some of our group chat at work. And it asks every so often for me to verify who I am. If somebody gets a new thing, it tells me their pin has changed or that at least the device code has changed. So you do have an idea that things are changing in a conversation over time. Yeah, I find it interesting though in this one, the iMessage man in the middle, that it, it, will, it will tell you I've got a new device. But you shouldn't be telling me to go, did you know you've got a new device added to your account? I'm assuming they're doing that as well. Because th- what happens if I haven't got a new device and somebody is pretending to be me? I think we get that though, don't we? You know, whenever you add a new phone or iPad or something like that, it says FaceTime and this number has been updated to include a new account as a notification in the middle of your screen. Yes, you are quite correct. So I had forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, I, I, you know, because I've been moving my SIM card around to and fro the, the last few weeks. I'm seeing it quite a lot at the moment. I left Voxy and I went to another mobile network because the deal was better. So I, I've seen a bit of that recently. <laughs> no, fair enough. I, I haven't done it for a wee while, I must say. Fair enough. Good. I think that's a reasonable summation of where we are. I think it's overall an improvement on what's been going on. It needed to happen. I'm glad it's happened. I'm cautiously optimistic for the way it's going. They need to communicate better about all this kind of stuff. And we haven't even gone into the child and sexual abuse material stuff that's been dropped, but maybe that's a story for another day. I'd say a story for another day as we've gone along. We've gone long. So on that note, my app of the week is Dead Cells Plus on Apple TV. I've already mentioned it this week. I don't need to go into it in any great detail. A link will be above in the show notes. And I think that's all I've got this week, Chris. Yeah, I don't have an app of the week. I'm just using the same old apps I use every week. Fair enough. Well, maybe next week when we do our apps of the year, you'll have a couple of recommendations. Yeah, I better get, get thinking about that one. But look, thank you, Rod. It was good good tonight. And if anybody out there wants to contact us, do email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com or reach out on Twitter at WFS underscore podcast. Talk to you next week. Cheers, Rod. Mm-hmm.